welcome, welcome, welcome to another edition of 12 Million. So, my name is Akbar Majid and my host, co-host Darren Jenkins. What's going on? Yeah, so we are blessed today to have in the house Mr. Claude Johnson yeah. from the Black Five Organization. So we are blessed. How are you doing today, sir? I'm real good. Thank you. It's a, it's a blessing and a privilege and honor to be on with you guys, too, you know? This is this is a, an amazing time that we're in, and I, I really appreciate and admire what you're doing. Great. Yeah, well, we're glad you you were able to set out some time to join us today. I know you're a very busy man, particularly this time. Yep. So we're we're definitely glad you joined us. So, um, so let's okay, I guess we'll jump right in. Um, so tell us a little bit about Black Five and kind of where that came about and your journey. To, up to this point. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, first, the Black Fives Foundation, it's a 501c3 nonprofit. It's a public charity. And our mission is to research, preserve, showcase, teach, and honor the pre-NBA history of African Americans in basketball. So that goes back to the early 1900s and uh, all the way up to 1950 when the NBA signed its first Black players. And there's a lot of detailed information and history in between that was just forgotten over time. Um, no one's specific fault, but it just so happened that it got buried. And um, when I when I learned about this history, I made it at first a hobby, and then it became more and more serious and eventually a full-time thing where I just decided to, to really get into it and um, try to bring it all back to life, you know? And so sometimes the, the timing is everything and right now we're in that time where it's it's flourishing and coming co- really coming back to life and i i think everybody appreciates it mm, mm. definitely definitely so tell us a little bit more about your journey your personal journey so um... yeah well i mean so my personal my personal journey was um has to do with uh i mean some, sometimes you know you, you you have to ask yourself well why why am I even doing this, right? Like some, somebody asked me one time, you know, what what's your birthright? Because <laughs> uh, this is what like elderly, uh, our, our village elders, let's say, especially in the South, will say that, you know, what's your birthright? Right. Uh, like, but another way of interpreting that is what's your purpose? Like what's, what are you after here, right? And we should always be asking ourselves that. And so for me, Part of it is that, you know, I have uh, I have grandparents who uh, grew up and lived in Louisiana, northern Louisiana. And uh, just as I was growing up, we would always hear stories of that. They lived down there. They eventually moved to Chicago. Um, They had uh, brothers and sisters. Some of them had land. Um, They eventually some became sharecroppers. And they, they all ended up in Chicago for the most part. And nobody heard about this land. Nobody knew why they left. Um, and then my, my, my father's father became a Pullman porter oh, wow. um, for his mm-hmm. entire career in Chicago. If, you, if you're not aware, if the, some of your viewers are not aware, Pullman porter is where, you know, it's a very dignified job. It's a job that... Um, you have to be a gentleman. You, you learn how to um, be mannerly and you, you learn all these um, ways of, of dealing with often indignities um, with class uh, yeah. you know, on these journeys. 
he was on the Illinois Central um, Railroad, and he retired with with the Illinois Central. Um, and I'm saying all that because he he never learned how to read or write. Mm. Um, but his son, my father, ended up becoming a college professor uh, eventually, and and then all of his children. Um, got college degrees, including myself, my, my five siblings, mm-hmm. four siblings, the five of us. And so I always felt like that somehow we owed them something. Um, you know, my, my father's father said to him, you know, uh, watch out, you know, watch out for them educations. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you wanted them educations, watch out, they'll, they'll bust your head wide open. Right. And 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 what and he, he keeps repeating that you know it's a mantra, my my dad. And the reason why is that he, it's it has two meanings, right? It has that meaning of it could literally like become a problem to be too educated, mm. but it can also expand your mind like just beyond what you could ever imagine. Mm. So when I first discovered this history when I was working at the NBA, okay. um, I. Uh, found this book by Arthur Ashe, the tennis legend. Um, it was, it's called A Hard Road to Glory. And it uh, is about the 400-year the journey of African-Americans in sports. And they have a section, he had a section on, on basketball. And in that section, he named a, excuse me, a variety of different teams. And, um, and one of, you know, and, and I just thought, well, how come the NBA doesn't know about this? They, the NBA at that time, was celebrating their their 50th anniversary in in 1996, and they published an 800-page book, but only three of the pages in that book were devoted to earlier black teams. So I just felt like the math didn't add up, you right. know. And mm. Ash named some a, a, you know a significant number of teams in his book, so it just created this curiosity. It made me you know start a journey to just say. Well, who knows about this? Where where do I find out? Um, the the Hall of Fame didn't really know the the archives. Nobody knew. Um, there were some academic experts who had written some things, but back then nothing was digitized, so you couldn't tell who had what. Couldn't just search up real quick. You know, what's the knowledge base on this? And so that began my journey, and I I've just always felt like wouldn't wouldn't my ancestors want to know? Didn't my ancestors, didn't these basketball ancestors fight and and navigate and challenge and, and um, you know, uh, go through and around and <clears throat> underneath and over and whatever it took to, 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 to get past, you know, what, what their obstacles were. And so someone, someone should um, unearth that. And it just so happened that, you know, I, I had the interest, the... The circumstances, our family circumstances, made that possible, um, and uh, so you know, I just kept following that with, right. with divine guidance, you know, and and just hard work too, you know. Right, right. So now that's great because I know you know we've done a fairly good job of documenting the Negro leagues, mm-hmm. but you know, the basketball space, like you said, has really been untapped, um, and we, a lot of times we think about just us playing, starting in, you know, the NCAA, where I know the movie, I believe it was Glory Road, was kind of the beginning and then, you know, trans, you know, into the NBA. 
but I think it's very important for us to know this part of our history, right? Mm. Um, so, yeah, so um, you're yeah. doing a wonderful job. Um, no, thank you. And, and those are all good movies, right? But right. the thing is, you know, black teams were playing white teams routinely before 1910. Right. And so it wasn't like a major thing, I mean, in the black basketball community. But what was different is that they, they weren't necessarily involved, uh, allowed to participate in what would previously have been called a white tournament. So the NCAA was definitely, you know, considered that. And it was um, very unusual to have black players in the first place, but eventually that came through the Big Ten and other conferences had their first black players. Um, but, yeah, I mean, part of it is it's it's just uh, it's, it's just been forgotten because of the magnitude of the success of the NCAA, as you mentioned, and also the NBA, there was no reason for them to look back. The Major League Baseball did have reason to look back because they played those teams and a lot, there were a lot more, there's a lot more celebration about Jackie Robinson. Right. Um, and, and, and how, you know, he came from the Negro Leagues and that there were lots of players who eventually did um, filter into the Negro Leagues or work mm -hmm. for I mean, into the majors, um, work their way uh, effort-wise into the majors. Mm. And so, um, and, you know, we have to make sure that the stories are told the right way, not just any which way, right. a certain way, so that they don't get revisionist, revisionized or whatever the case. I was, in the beginning of this journey, you know, I made friends with one of the, one of the uh, pioneers, his name, it was John Isaacs. His nickname was Boy Wonder because he came straight out of high school at Textile High in, in, uh, in uh, New York City and went straight to the pros and immediately um, helped them to win a world championship of professional basketball, the, the, first, the first one. And he always used to say, make sure that it's not his story, but right. his story. History, right. So yeah. That, you know, something that I, I, another mantra that I go by. Mm -hmm. I have a question. Sorry, history doesn't change, right? Right. Only what we do with it changes. Correct, yeah. Right. Um, I have a question because, you know, it's funny. With the tournament happening right now, right, you, you know how they always have, like, these backstories to a lot of these players. And and it, what would kind of started to occur to me in a lot of instances where a lot of these players are inspired by their mother's sports mm -hmm. experiences. So I'm wondering if they're like, you know, given the fact that the WNBA was, is pretty much a fledgling league, what history, what has been kind of maintained for black women's in, in their contribution in, in the basketball world? Oh, that's huge. I mean, we, we've we've documented and researched, and um, you know, there's some tremendous stories. Uh, there were there were just as many women's teams practically wow. as there were men's mm. teams. One of the reasons why at the very beginning was that these were social clubs a lot of times, or church related, so they were community based organizations really. Mm. And so, uh, if you take a, an example of uh, the teams that were in New York City, um, because they were connected with socializing and what what socializing meant back then was really a way of bonding and building community um 
either within the group or with other groups that were that they were playing right so um so all of the men's teams actually had a sister team that was a women's team oh often the often the the, the captain or somebody from the men's team would coach the women's team and then when the when the men's team had a, a visiting squad come to play them they would host that visiting squad along with their sister team to make it a social event right so so when when you use the word host uh, they literally did host they would throw a party dinner um, make sure that they had accommodations um, you know it was a, it was really and, and the reason why was because if you're from Brooklyn and you're hosting a team you know how you know if you're the smart set athletic club of Brooklyn and then you're hosting the you know Howard University uh, varsity. Hmm. Um, you know, people in Brooklyn didn't necessarily know what was going on in D.C. They didn't have necessarily hmm. telephones. It was certainly not radio. You didn't have social media. Um, so the only social networking was to literally get social and network. Hmm. Um, and so that's why in the early days, all of the ticket stubs and advertisements would say basketball and dance. So basketball, <laughs> two words. And then dance, basketball, and dance. Those always went together, and every host team would also be responsible for providing an orchestra, uh, okay. a jazz ensemble or orchestra that would play before the game, during halftime, and after the game. Hmm. And so that's why people came to the game, um, but they also came because of what would happen after the game. Right. You know, so it it was a marriage of of music um, and uh, and and sports. Um, but the women's teams were really important, um, and they kept getting better and better. And one of them, maybe the best one of them all, was a team out of Philadelphia called the, the Philadelphia Tribune Girls. They were sponsored by the Philadelphia Tribune, which was the black newspaper, the leading black newspaper in Philadelphia at the time. Hmm. And um, the Tribune Girls won the Black National Championship 11 years in a row. Oh, wow. um, yeah, so their star player, they had several stars, but their most significant star was a woman named Aura, Aura Washington. And uh, Aura Washington, we, we helped um, just by promoting and advocating for her recognition, um, get her enshrined into the Basketball Hall of Fame. Oh, wow. Nice. And so now she is the earliest female basketball player enshrined in the basketball hall of fame wow um, the irony what, or, what time of what time are we talking about when we talk this about was, this was from the late 30s into the into the 40s oh wow um so i'm sorry from the early 30s into the uh into the early 40s mm. um and so you know the sad irony of that is that when she re when aura retired from basketball she became obscure and worked for the rest of her career as a maid. And when she died, people didn't even know she passed away. And not until later did, did people slowly, you know, begin to, historians and others begin to resurrect her life and her importance. Mm. One of the reasons why she was important also is that she played tennis and she was a major tennis star. Oh, wow. Um, and wow. she was a mentor to Althea Gibson, who was also from Philadelphia. Oh, wow. Who, as you know, went on to become a major tennis star, winning the Wimbledon and the U.S. Open uh, twice and being named 
uh, female athlete of the year twice in a row by Time Magazine. You know, these were just unprecedented, un unheard of things at the time. This was in the 50s. Mm. Um, so she, she actually, you know, played a tremendous role. And now she's getting, you know, more recognition. But that's in terms of women's teams, one of the, and women's stars, one of the, one of the greatest. Oh, wow. Wow. That's, I, yeah, because it always strikes me as funny because, you know, when you think basketball, you always kind of think of the men's game, obviously, but there are so many male athletes who, who got their genes or got their, their, their hunger for the game from their mothers. Right. And we don't hear about it like as much, right. you know, it's kind of like just skated over. And I, I just, um, you know, for me, Giannis, I love women's basketball. I think it's fan absolutely fantastic. And I will watch it any time of the day you give me. I will watch women's basketball because I, it's just such a it's such a pure sport, right? There's no no dudes dunking, there's no, you know, it's just about strategy and the just the talent that's there on the court. So, I find it always fascinating. Um, no, I, mean, I can I can second that because I have three uh, student athlete sons, okay. and um, the two older ones play Division One football. The younger one is uh, is a prospect, a Division One prospect. He's a sophomore in high school, hmm. and all of them, <laughs> I I know this is true, um, have a significant amount of their talent and their competitiveness and their inner drive and passion and emotion from their mom that's a fact so um and they will definitely you know when they see or hear this and or when she sees or hear this definitely you know praise to to her um, hmm. and, and and how she was and how she still is right now in terms of you know being a we in our family we would always say um you know you have uh you have lighthouses you know okay in your life. Like some people say the five, you know, people around you, but it's also their, their lighthouses, good or bad. Cause they'll tell you either don't go over there by those rocks. Right. Right. But just, you stay over there, but I'm just telling you, I'm not going that way. I see you, but that's not me. Right. And then you have other people who are like, okay, this is the way to go. Follow these lighthouses. This will tell you the channel or whatever the case. And sometimes when you get kind of lost or bewildered or disoriented, that's who you need to look at. Okay, where? who are the people that are rock solid? Right. Like, right. Well, tell me where I am at the moment so I can get my bearings again, you know? And so mm -hmm. um, she, she's, she's that uh, for right. sure. <laughs> and I bet you anything that if you ask, um, you know, uh, male players in NCAA or, or NBA, like, who, who is that? You know, th there's definitely a lot that would say their mom, yep. right. that rock, who is there unchanging no matter what that's who i can look for i may not always agree but i know that when i look over there that's how i know where i am by, by yeah. where by where exactly. she is you know? yeah absolutely um what were what were some of the obstacles that you came across in trying to do this and trying to build this legacy of 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 culture, of sport, of personal endurance? Like, what, what were some of the obstacles that came in building the foundation? Or still have, right? So it's, right. Yeah. No, it's continued. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure it's not over yet, right? <laughs> I mean, you know what? I'll tell you what. Um, for a long, long time, 
just nobody knew or cared about this at mm -hmm. all. Um, and there were people who were interested, but it wasn't really embraced as culturally important or just, yeah, I don't know what that, like, I just don't know what that is. I don't know what to make of it. Right. And part of that is I, I always say, you know, it's, you could be, you could have the right thing at the right time in the right place, but you're the wrong person. Mm. Or you could have yeah. you know, the right person and any other combination is the wrong time or whatever. Right. Um, so, so I don't really, I don't really blame anyone for, for, for that. I just think part of the, you know, one challenge was those, again, when you're raising, when you're raising three sons and then there's recruiting and then there's, you know, SATs and, 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 and help with applications and traveling to camps and to, you know, clinics and to tryouts and practices and games and tournaments and things like that, like nonstop for, for all those years, you have to figure out a way to do that. So, so that it works for, for the whole, you know, ideally for the whole family. Right. And, um, and so that's, that was part of the challenge is, okay, how do, how do I do this? At the very beginning, you know, I, I created a, uh, a line of throwback jerseys at one point, okay. which, um, you know, are still out there. If you look at them, we, we have them on our store. Like we're, we're going to slowly start to introduce more and more of them. Just mm -hmm. there's only a few left, but we still have some of that, some of that stock. But um, my point, my point being that, you know, we I tried to go that commercial route of making T-shirts and jerseys and and, and things like that. Um, but it, it it's really hard to do that and to sustain it. Um, and back then there was really no internet or e-commerce like the way there is now. Now you can get on Shopify or a number of other platforms and just start selling. Right. And you don't even have to have product. You could just put the product on something. And you know, and and sell it that way without even touching without even touching it. Um, if you have a good idea, but back then, um, you know, you had to have the funding. You had to uh, have a place to store the inventory. You had to have a way to fulfill it. You had to have, and and, and I'm not alone. All everybody back then had the same challenge. You had to right. when right. you're trying to sell to retailers. You, uh, you know, you have to go to, to a trade show and then you have to display and exhibit at the trade show. And then you have to have sales reps who take orders and then you have to fulfill those orders and get a loan and all this other stuff. So and then anything can go wrong, you know, which it did um, because the whole market collapsed because there were too many uh, knockoffs. Mitchell and Ness uh, was the leader, but, they, but everybody was knocking them off, which put all the retailers out of business which meant that some of the retailers that owed us money also went out of business. And so that was a real hit, but it was also a blessing because then it's, then it made us say, okay, okay, well, what is this really? Is it more of a t-shirt thing? Like, like, yeah, I can, I can sell you a t-shirt, you know, you can get a t-shirt for your, for your nephew or whatever, or I can talk to you about a cause, the cause being, hey, let's learn more about this, and 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 that cause itself has evolved, you know, because at first it was just let's get this information out there, and then it became okay, let's focus on research, uh, you know, preservation, um, exhibition, which we we call you know showcasing, um, you know, teaching this history, honoring. That came about because we. I eventually decided the best thing for for us to do would be to uh, create a nonprofit, okay. not just to have you know 
be it's really really hard to be profitable selling t-shirts jerseys and whatever whatever you can um and to make a real living at that um it's extremely hard from from the people that uh you might know or have have on here uh, you know just it's it's real difficult. Yeah. I know a little bit of something about that, but yeah, I definitely understand. Right? Yeah, you know, you know how it is. Like it can it can be really challenging. And what's different now, what's almost the perfect storm now, is that um, black entrepreneurs, uh, like like yourself, Akbar, and you're what you're doing with Rise. Um, you guys, you know, it, someone can come up with a with a with a concept. Someone who's creative can doesn't even need to partner up with a major distributor or a major yeah. manufacturer or whatever. Like you just get your stuff, get it together, make it look nice, put it online, um, promote it on Instagram, and you can actually start selling and, oh, yeah. and, and, and go. You can take it step further and step further as you go. Um, but you know that's what that's what's beautiful now because because it makes um, it cuts out some of the middle um middle layers that always made it so hard to uh to get into this um and and i think on the one hand it hurts regular retailers but in another way those regular retailers have become online uh um you know uh destinations Right. So you mentioned time, right? So we're in a very, you know, interesting time now, right? So as far as time, but also what's your thoughts on other retailers or brands capitalizing off of this time, but also capitalizing off of our culture, right? Mm-hmm. What kind of what's your overall thoughts about that? Because you mentioned the Michelin Ness, um, you know, that was back in the late '90s, early 2000s, where you know urban culture was booming, particularly from a hip hop perspective, right? Um, and they did fairly well, you know, so I know, you know brands like New Era who really capitalized off of tapping into our culture, right? So, but, so what's your thoughts about it? Yeah, I mean, not just them, but almost every brand, right. every consumer brand, it probably almost imaginable has, has tapped into black culture. Mm. Black consumer culture, um, and some have done it in a way that is uh, that benefits, and and have um, put people on, you know, in terms of, okay, yeah, you know, we're better off, the community's better off, the the you know, educationally or in some other way, partnering up, um, having vendors, having you know, uh, uh, ways to empower, um, economically empower. Uh, uh, African American businesses, or, or and so on, um, but in other cases, it was just kind of unchecked. Like we're just going to sell, and we know that you have a mark. There's a market, and y'all are buying. Um, and I'm and I'm a former, you know, employee of Nike, so mm-hmm. so but I'm not picking on them. But in the footwear business, that's almost that has been really almost um, an an unspoken in a way truth for a long time was just, yeah, that's right, we're selling this. And then eventually it became, okay, wait, now we have to hire more black people so that we can be representative and Mm -hmm. only fair, you know. But it it was almost, uh, 
almost reluctant in a way or just okay yeah. we kind of have to because we we got busted in a way you know right. and, um, <laughs> you know but but so and and be, and it was precisely because of that that when we started talking to Puma which we have a, a long-term partnership with them. yeah that's gonna lead into that so that's about yeah. leading conversations <laughs> to your new collaboration right so you yeah and, and, and so so I'll, I'll I'll wait till you till you bring it up but my, my main my main point there is that if a brand whether it's footwear or anybody else there's a lot of collabs out there there's a lot of okay we're gonna do this we're going to do a licensing deal and you're going to get an infusion of cash whatever that is because you're going to get this much money because it's going to sell this much or it's going to give you this many more um you know likes or followers okay um and it's going to establish your brand somehow and make you more cool or whatever the case And, and in some cases it really does um set up black owned businesses for further success but in most cases, it's just a, a one-hit thing, and we experienced that with Nike, where we had a, a licensing um, agreement, you know, a a a, uh, a program with them that lasted kind of like one and a half seasons. It was a big spike, and then it just dropped off, and then nothing, uh, no storytelling, no real like trying to make a difference. And part of that is because nobody asked. For that to, to to make a difference, so you you get a presentation in front of the, the black employees union, or you get you know uh, something that's written up in in you know the root or ebony, and that's all cool, yeah. you know. Right. But after this summer, or this summer, you know, I started realizing it's not enough. It's just no longer enough to say, hey, look, here are these here are these black basketball pioneers. Um, You know, they overcame these obstacles. They paved the way. Aren't they great? Let's give them a round of applause. Yeah. Because that's just not enough. Because I'm thinking, how can we utilize this history? Our our slogan is make history now. What we can be accountable for is teaching and talking about black basketball history. And so when, when when we were you know, started messing with Puma, then we start saying, okay, we don't want this to just be a licensing agreement that makes you guys look good. And, oh, isn't this great? We have money. Um, It was more, you know, Puma partners with the Black Fives Foundation in support of Black history education reform. The reform part is how how are we going to change this? So that it's not just, hey, look, it's Black History Month. Isn't this great? Because <laughs> right. to me, that that is the way that that um, white supremacy is socialized. It's just by looking at it real quick. And okay, since we looked at it, hey, that's good, right? Yeah, we're, we're cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so yeah, so let me jump in right quick. So um, just a little tip. So I was introduced to your brand when I jumped into the licensing business and I was kind of looking at the landscape, um, a brand that I was kind of interested in, impressed somewhat with was the 47th brand. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I saw it, I saw this Black Five collection and I was like, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. 
you know, uh, how did that come about? You know, who are the individuals behind it? Um, and then a little later, I was fortunate enough to meet you, right? So uh, I said, ah, that's the brother who did the Black Five piece, right? So I know now you just recently launched a collection with Puma. Um, and you got into that a little bit, but how did it come about, right? I think you talked about how you approached it in the sense of it's not going to be a traditional licensing deal, right? Take our brand, y'all do it, you throw us a little money, and you move on. But but how did that come about, and you know, what are the things that you are working on, and kind of where you see that going? Yeah, I mean, it's it's actually a long time in the making um, because. Uh, uh, We've, you know, because I was a, a, a former Nike employee, I was always like, you know, like I was practically one of those, one of those dudes that would like put the the Nike swoosh tattoo on their ankle and stuff, you know, protecting the swoosh as they call it, right? <laughs> they do, right? But um, I mean, I, I have lots of great friends. Really, some of my best friends are are at Nike or former Nike employees. So I'm not, I'm not, they know I'm not making fun of them. Um, right, but right. the thing is, um, it's really, you know, this conversation with Puma really started because I have a, a younger brother uh, who is a, a, a career um, long designer and innovator. And uh, he has um, been in the footwear business um, and even before he got to Puma, we've always talked about how can we figure out a way to get to get black fives into uh, on the on the menu or on the radar for a footwear company. Oh, wow. He was with Adidas. Uh, he was with Converse. Um, and, and even before that, and, and, and the reason I'm saying mentioning him is because these last few years, he just left the he just left the company, but he was the. Global Director of Innovation for Puma oh. in Germany. Oh, wow. And, uh, and, and so um, he's one of those obscure hidden brothers who you never hear about, <laughs> but uh, very talented and, um, and now is out consulting and doing some things on his own that's going to be uh, really um, important. And he's, he's been behind some of Puma's most amazing innovations. His name is oh, Charles wow. Johnson. Okay. Um, so, uh, so, but even way before that, the land before time, <laughs> um, <laughs> he and I were in New York city. I was in Brooklyn. That's when I was reading about Arthur Ashe and, and, uh, and I called him up one day and I said, you know, I, I just found out about this really cool team and he was running his own, um, design firm. Um, which was called Sports Creative. It was it was uh, designed for the sports industry, not only footwear but other things. And um, so I I knew that he could somehow see the design side of it and figure out because I wasn't on the create I was never in the creative side other than maybe as a kid I would draw like logos on made up sports team you know helmet logos and stuff. Um, but the thing is, you know, he 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 ran with it. He said, "Okay, I, here's here's some ideas, and we we talked about names and logos, and he had uh, um, some graphic artists and other people at his disposal, um, and he even knew some people in Foot Locker and elsewhere who said, "Wow, this is a, a pretty good idea." And they actually created a little micro capsule, you know, that 
appeared in a couple of stores okay. briefly because it just had no legs, but it was, the reason it had, had no legs is because, again, this was way before internet. So we, we, we didn't know how to do the research on the teams or further, but he, he did a lot of, through a lot of effort on, on his part, um, you know, creating, you know, like a, what they called um, like a folio or a, a lookbook of what, what it could be right. and some of the teams. Um, and then it kind of, you know, he, he had to move on to other jobs and, and I had other responsibilities. Eventually I went to Nike and elsewhere and couldn't really pursue it. But eventually I came back to it and said, okay, you know, this, let's use this logo and resurrect some of these things that, that he had originally started. Um, you know, morph the logo to make it more, uh, maybe more accurate or more relevant. Um, the, the original logo had a, a basketball player um, with the ball who was palming the ball, but the ball was bigger back then. So really, you couldn't really palm that ball at the, at the, at the time. Yeah. So, you know, I just had him like resting that ball on his hip. And I made the, the guys a little more muscular and some, and by then I had learned, you know, partly with, with Charles's help, um, Photoshop and Illustrator. So I knew how to go in there and mess with it, um, creating those logos. And then also, um, you know, when I, I had by now done a lot of research on the teams and found photographs. And so I used Photoshop and Illustrator to go in there and trace the logos. And then I used my licensing experience to, uh, apply for and get trademarks on the names and, and those logos of those teams and create a, an, an intellectual property um, portfolio, mm. which then we, you know, I started taking it around. And that's when I, that's when I started, that's when I met Mitchell and Ness. Cause I was like, Hey, what about this? And they were like, you know, we, we like that, but we're just, we can't do it. It's it. Our hands are full. It's too busy. This was when they were just skyrocketing. All right. But they put us onto their, uh, to their um, sourcing uh, okay. network, and so all of a sudden I was in you know Korea developing jerseys, and you know, wow. and I had I believe I had the best jersey. I had a, my jersey was better than Mitchell and Ness in my opinion. <laughs> less. Nice, um, and people still say that they're like, man, you had the best the best jerseys. Um, but we we you know we we launched um, you know I I hired uh, some a sales agency. They went out and got orders from you know, like 250 retail doors, oh, wow. around the, uh, urban retail stores around the country. Um, but that all collapsed, as I said earlier. Hmm. And so eventually, Charles ends up at Puma. And so right away, we started to talk like, what, what about this? What about that? But it, it just wasn't right. Ba Puma wasn't even in basketball um, right. at the time. And But what he would do, he wasn't responsible, but, but what he would do is at the right time, he would kind of like use a magic touch to sort of like say the right thing at the right moment right. and whisper in somebody's ear who would be like, huh, but it still, it just never took off. And then meanwhile, you had um, this brother at Puma uh, who is their merchandiser um, for apparel. And he was separately proposing to Puma uh, internally, we should be doing this, we should be doing this. And then meanwhile, Puma's getting into basketball. And then also right. you have, they now have a relationship with Rock Nation. Right. So those guys from that side are, were continuously also saying, hey, what about this? And so somehow it eventually came together. At first it was, we were talking about um, 
so, like Puma has a very strong um, cause-related uh, initiative called Reform, and um, they are they are in support of uh, everything from prison reform to gender equality to LGBTQ uh, recognition and rights and voting rights and and other things, and so um, and so this sort of fell into that. They weren't really quite sure where it should be. And then, you know, again, going back to Charles, you know, he, um, we, I would always go visit him, right? <laughs> and so, you know, from time to time, then I'd be in the cafeteria and there's the there's the CEO, you know, and I was like, he'd be like, hey, come over here for a second. I want you to meet my brother, you know? So that, those little, those little things were just those little magical moments that kind of planted seeds. Right. And one time, you know, somebody from Rock Nation was was over there and talked with. They talked at length, and so all this sort of was percolating. And um, uh, because I was talking to their cause, um, this cause initiative, their contacts in that, um, I they invited me to um, to their uh, flagship store opening. Um, the it's they have a flagship store in New York City on Fifth Avenue. It's right, right down the street from St. Patrick's Cathedral, and um, and and so I, you know, that's where I met some more of those people. And every time, you know, I'm just a salesperson, so I'm always, whenever I get a chance to meet somebody, I'm like, hey, you know, by the way, you know, Black Lives, right. but you don't want to come on too strong, but also this is what it is, and 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 somehow those conversations just kept going. Um, the folks in Germany were like, well, you should really be talking to our guys in in you know Puma North America, and then Puma North America. You know, eventually we had a meeting, a conversation, and we talked about it, and sent all those previous samples from Forty Seven Brand and from when we did that. And they were like, wow, this is really something. And you know, just kept snowballing, and one thing led to another at that point, and then eventually. Last October, um, we 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 actually finalized the the you know the uh, the partnership, um, and I used my grandmother's fountain pen to yeah, I saw uh, the video to sign with <laughs> the deal so that she yeah. could somehow be you know be part of it because it was just as much her moment and my grandfather's moment and all of their relatives you know as as, as it is mine you know and as as it is all of our families as well. And it's a true collaboration, right? And it's, it's, I know it's a, a, a number of shoes, a number of T-shirts, uh, gear, sweats. I mean, it's the whole nine, right? I mean, it's, it's they, they really seem like y'all really went in and said, you know, this is going to be not only just clothing and merchandise, but I know there's a number of educational videos that you all have out um, and some other things that you all are working on. Correct. Yeah, I mean, so it's a it's a partnership. It's a it's a long term partnership, and so we're already looking at um, the drops for you know late to, late 2021 and early 2022 and late 2022 and so on. And all those drops, as you know, I mean, apparel and merchandise and footwear. It's really just a language, right? Right. So all we're trying to do is you can rock the gear, but also it's a it's an opportunity to start a conversation, mm. it's an opportunity for people to say, well, what, what is that? Let me see what it says on the back. What is Black Fives? Um, and then to start looking into it and then to learn more. Um, but even that, to me, is not enough. 
they they made some great videos. They they um, they used uh, they used uh, black animators. They used black uh, voiceover art artists. The voiceovers were descendants of the actual pioneers that. Are, oh, that wow. About. wow. Um, yeah, we we uh, we arranged that arranged that um, black videographers, uh, uh, you know, as many people because the whole point of it is, you know, to more the more that we can put put people on, especially people of color, African Americans in particular, then um, that's what that's the whole point of it. Right. So um, you know, I wanted there to be a meta story within the story. Um, the TikTok influencer that they used, and, and so on. Um, but it's not just these videos and the merchandise. It's also that they um, are going to be, or they 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 agreed to be, they committed to be the presenting sponsors of our online museum. So we've always been talking about and having an online museum. I've been collecting, um, and we've been you know collecting. Uh, artifacts from this history. Um, mm. So now we have nearly a thousand items that are being maintained in this archive. And um, so what we, what I thought after the summer was, first, if you're a nonprofit, you really do want to have a way to measure the impact of what you're doing. So I started learning about this concept called OKRs, which is objectives and key results. And then also uh, most, a uh, lot of uh, nonprofits have to eventually come across the term called theory of change, which is what are you trying to accomplish? And then how do you get there from here? And all this stuff you just have to learn like along the way, like nobody really teaches you kind of figure it out, talk to people. And um, that made, that sort of made me realize okay, well, if we have a virtual museum, which um, we, we're calling a virtual vault, then, and if we have objects in there, items, photographs, ticket stubs, whatever, then each of those can be a teaching moment. Each of those can be a lesson or some kind of educational task. And then uh, as I started talking to teachers, school teachers especially, and people from the Department of Education and elsewhere, then they're saying, okay, Teachers do that. They can pull in a link into, into uh, Google Classroom, which is probably the, the vanguard of distance learning. But when they pull this in, it's not always already a lesson. Hmm. It's just a link with some information. It could be somebody's page. So that's what made me realize, well, wait, why can't we have, why can't we do a virtual vault with an educational component? And that would satisfy the, the the vision and what we you know what we called for um, at the at the beginning that we talked about in terms of you know black history education reform but specifically you know the part about black basketball history um, leading to conversations that we need to have um, and and I'll just give you one quick example so let's say we have a ticket stub and it's the New York Renaissance and they played in a certain year during the Great Depression during Jim Crow, um, and they often played 150 or so games a year. And wow. most of those games were on the road in places like Indiana, Ohio, upstate New York, Michigan, um, you know, Illinois, and elsewhere. And so what if we take that ticket stub and we say, okay, here's the uh, 
here's the uh, the um, schedule. Here are the cities and towns where they're going to play. Now you pretend you're the road manager. Here's a green book. Where do they stay? Why? And make that a project in a classroom. Now you're going to have everybody talking and saying, well, wait, hold on a second. Because it's basketball, but it's also history, but it's also Black culture. It's how did they get around it? Like all the things that that brings yeah. up to me is is really exciting. Hmm. I have my own. As you're sitting here telling this story, I got. I, I, we have to have a conversation, dude, because I, I have people to introduce you to. Because this is a fantastic idea, and, and it, it, it. I had a question I was going to answer, but uh, ask you, but I think you kind of already answered it, which was, how do we get younger people to care about what happened a century ago? You know what I'm saying? And I think that's the way to do it by appealing to them through the mediums that they understand. Yeah. Exactly. No, it's it's through the apparel. It's through the footwear. It's like, oh, this is dope on one level. On the other level, it's like, wait, what is this? And then starting those conversations, teachers can guide that. Um, parents can guide it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, parents are buying some of this. Um, right. You know, it's it's and then there'll be other things that are that are that are surrounding this in terms of not just um, a nod, you know, not just, hey, we honor these guys but and women, but also, okay, here's what we're doing about it to change that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we, we've gotten letters from, from white kids saying, wow, right. this is amazing, this is great. Um, uh, you know, everybody should know about this. Um, you know, so it's, yeah. it's, 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 really, it's really profound, right? Because right. it's... It's for everybody. And that's the whole point is, you know, sports brings us together. Um, you know, we you can disagree about different things, but you surely can say, okay, that was a good basketball play. Mm-hmm. That was a good football play, whatever, you know. And so um, that there's something about that that is intrinsic in our, you know, in American culture, but also in world culture. Sports plays a, a really important role. Mm-hmm. So let's use that. You know, and and uh, and I'm still learning. Like I'm not an expert. I'm still trying to figure out informally what a teacher is saying, what are professors saying, what are different, what are the ways of doing this. Um, we're talking to other potential partners that would be synergistic with with Puma. Um, you know, in in terms of helping us with that, because one of the things I said to to Puma and and, and to others is. We want to be in a position where five or ten years from now, people say, "You know what? They changed the conversation, man. Right. They changed yeah. the conversation. Like that was a pivot point. You know, it wasn't the same old, same old, same old. Which I don't, I don't disrespect any other efforts right. to put right. people on or whatever. But how are we making a difference? And so, if you're in a position to do that, that's really a blessing. It's, it's not mm-hmm. obligate. It's not even like a burden. It's, it's, and it's not even an obligation. It's a blessing. It's truly. That's why I'm truly grateful all the time, like mm. to be like, wow, you mean this is really happening? Like, okay, yeah. let's keep going with it, you know. Yeah. You know, it goes to say that representation matters, right? Just kind of how your journey into Puma and in those brothers and other people who will help who were kind of pivotal of kind of making this happen over time, right? So, yeah. It, it's not, it's not I would never say, Oh, I did this all by myself. Right. Because of course, a lot of the work, you know, went into it. 
um, from from my from my uh, from my side, the challenges and all that. But sometimes you just need that one little thing, that one little nudge, one little word, one little whisper, uh, one little seed planted, and then that, and then you you know, then you know, I still have to run with that, you right. know. Right, <laughs> you know, yeah, but yeah. I mean, you know, you got to first get, you have to first get that opportunity and first, um, you know, be able to infiltrate and get your way in. Mm-hmm. You got to be ready for that moment, right? Because right. plenty of plenty of great projects and ideas and things in history ha- happen through random convergences, yes. and. It doesn't. It doesn't matter if they happen unless, unless you're ready to take it. Take advantage of it when at the moment it happens. Right, and 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 that's the, you just said it. I mean, sometimes it's I call it. I said magical, but a lot of times it's just if you, whatever faith you believe in, there's some divine guidance involved right. where you mm-hmm. ask for divine guidance and help. And if you ask for that and then you don't heed it, right, then it's like okay, well, you know, what, what are you doing? <laughs> Right. right. So you got to be open. You got to be, you know, honest also and just grateful and humble. So, our, you know, my, my personal mantra is just to always be humble, grateful and open to to divine guidance, because the divine guidance will say what is best for the greatest, highest good, not just right. what's your goal right. you know, specifically. So this is just my opinion. But, you know, if you pray for a specific outcome, that may not right. be what the universe wants right now for you or for the greatest highest good you know so just be be open to letting go of certain objectives and being guided to others and a lot of people don't understand that how that works right. you know? right. because you can't quantify it that's why you can't even describe yeah. it man it's yeah. like what's going on you know but yeah <laughs> plus plus I, I have no I have no shame. I love Puma. So I've always loved Puma. Hey. So I grew I grew up I, I grew up wearing them. My my mom know if she was around still, she would tell you this boy used to get on my nerves asking me for some Pumas. Wow. So, yeah. That's so fascinating. Yeah. You know, I mean cuz cuz people people sleep on Pumas, I think. Um they're really dope and the, I've gotten to know uh, more and more about them, you know, in these last five, five or so years. Um, mm. or, um, you know, everybody had a pair of Pumas, you know, mm-hmm. you didn't always realize like, and especially the way they're coming back now and now they're yeah. in basketball. Yeah. And they're, they're, you know, they're actually like, you have to, you have to respect the effort and the, what it takes, the challenges to, to even get onto the court Mm-hmm. So it's a whole it's a whole concerted effort i was mentioning rock nation i mean that that's part of it right because you can't really get onto the court unless you have the players right that are part of your um you know repertoire of of ambassadors right and so you know they didn't just get any old players they got like actual first rounders and you know, rising stars, and um, they have, you know, what I consider to be, you know, a really solid and just the right amount of celebrity ambassadors, mm-hmm. um, you know, in music and in entertainment and in the footwear industry, you know, footwear, uh, footwear heads, I guess you could say, you know, sneakerheads, <laughs> culture, retailers, um, you know, so something they're doing is is right and it feels organic. I mean, at right. the moment, 
um, you know, and and when we first started having these conversations, part of the part of the challenge was because I think all of these companies are saying, well, but we don't feel we have enough black designers, or we don't have enough black employees, or we don't have, but you know, so how can we go out there and say we're for these reforms when we don't even have that ourselves, right? Right. And I'm saying no. I mean, I get that and I appreciate that, but everybody has to start somewhere. Right. And in our community, yeah. it's more important to commit to starting something right. and following through than where you started. Right. 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 But you said it's an excuse not to start, right? Right. So. right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because as a matter of fact, you could be more admired by the fact that you fucking started that shit. Right. <laughs> even when. Right. Like nobody else did, even if you started from ground zero, right? You know, yes. So, so like, sorry for that language. I had to say. No, it. definitely. Okay. you gotta say it like it is, right? I'm thinking about my man from my man Sin from uh, from uh, Afro Brutality, who's a, a, a partner. You should have him on your show. Definitely. Um, you know, he has all those sayings. If you go to Afro Brutality on. Uh, on IG, you'll see some of, some of the things he writes. <laughs> I mean, it's this brilliant psychology. Um, and no, they have right. a partnership yeah. in uh, in Puma Apparel as well, by the way. Just not putting a plug in. I'm just, I just like what, what they're doing. <laughs> so kind of speaking on that note, kind of what do you think about the kind of current state of basketball, how players are kind of trying to balance, you know, being the athlete, being the entertainer, being the influencer, but also being conscious, right, and speaking out, um, kind of what's your thoughts about that? Um, That's obvious, right? I mean, right. it's like, why wouldn't, not only why wouldn't they, but they're almost in a certain way obligated Um but well, I wouldn't say I wouldn't go so far as to say obligated because everyone has their own journey, right? And everyone can do whatever they feel like they can do, um, whether it's to support your own family, your own block, your own neighborhood, your own community, your own city, whatever the case. You, you have all the way to the other end of the spectrum, which is you know LeBron James and um, the Atlanta Dream, you know, literally changing election results, mm-hmm. right? Like single-handedly, practically, not not single-handedly with a whole team, but from right. his own initiative. Right. Uh, and with Stacey Abrams. Yeah, and their own initiative, right? And, and right. then you have exactly so you have people like Stacey Abrams and all the things that happened in in Georgia um, with the Senate Senate runoff and how that all happened. Um, and then you have, you know, LeBron is announced today that he became a part owner of the Boston Red Sox. Right. Yeah. You know, so you just keep like there's no like what what if this whole entire thing flipped? Mm. Just flipped. Now we have to be ready yes. to say, okay, wait a second, what are we gonna do now that we're on the other side of this? Right. Right? Right. And, um, you know, the the reality is, like, we have to be doing this mm-hmm. in all ways. And so if you're in a position to be part of it, it's not a trend. It's not um, somehow, like, it's not even, it's beyond protest at this point. At this right. point, it's just, okay, here's the things we're trying to do. It's a list. How do we go about doing right. it? Right. 
period. And so LeBron is a great role model. I would say Sean Carter, Jay-Z is a great role model. Um, this is how you do business. This is how you um, take initiative, who you partner with, the kinds of partners that you're with. Um, it says a lot, but it also, it's just for, for the effectiveness of it. It's not just to make money. It, that's part of it because we're in a capitalistic society. Right. But it's also, okay, but what are we ultimately doing? LeBron building, building a, a charter school in Akron, yeah. right? Um, which has had so many years and generations of historical neglect of, of education in the black community, right? Just chronically right. going back to the days of the Black Fives era. Right. Um, so it's really uh, remarkable and that's just one example, right? You know, we hopefully, not hopefully, but I'm pretty sure that there's just more to come. Yeah, yeah. So and it's gonna, you know, the NBA hopefully will continue to empower their their athletes to make the the moves that they need to make because it does for them get. If, I feel like it gets more complex for them as as an entity, a personal entity every day. Like every day there's a new piece of the chessboard being put on the board for them to have to maneuver and figure out. So um, hopefully they just keep, they, it, it doesn't keep them from doing those things that they, to, to, to make changes, um, whether it's small or large, like you said, it's not about where you start, but where you finish. And you know, so... Well, and, and also, you know, the people say the NBA, but when you really look at it, it's it's the league. <laughs> Players. I have this message again here. Should I ignore? You should be, you're okay. I think you, wait, let's see. Without the players, none of this Obviously, they have to go along with it. Mm. But even if you go back and the numbers, that was players and it was others. And then also the league doing the right thing, specifically Adam Silver, who is a brilliant, progressive thinking, compassionate, empathetic individual who also happens to be running um, the league as a commissioner. Um, Yep. And he reports to the owners and the players report to the, their union um, and obviously have contracts with those same owners. Um, so it's, uh, it, there's multiple entities. The players just have to make sure and, and really, you know, understand the role that they can play. And I think that Michelle Roberts and the, the, um, the head of, uh, she's the executive director um, of the players union right. and, and there's, there's other, uh, individuals in that organization and then th- their own executive committees. Hmm. They are the people who are brilliant thinkers and leaders, um, in that, in that realm, um, who, who can, who can help w- with younger guys coming in. And, you know, of course, the first thing is you just want to play 
But right. eventually you get to the point, if, if, you, if you succeed in it, longevity or whatever the case, right. uh, of, of saying, okay, now what else can I do? Um, yeah. You know, it's, and, I, and I know that uh, I, I think most, if not all, of the league players, um, when, they, when they join up into, into the league and become professional and sign on with a team, one of the first things they do is create a, a, a nonprofit, a charity, a foundation, something where they can use that as, a, as leverage to, to give back, mm. uh, make a difference or change something. So, um, you know, we're definitely, I'm really encouraged. There's a hard work ahead, but yeah. I'm encouraged by all the things and the progression of what's happening. And it's, it's organic. It's, it's not somebody saying you must do this. It's just happening. What's happening, you know, when you, you know, yep. uh, when, when, uh, who was it, Victor Hugo, that said, um, you know, greater than the march of a thousand armies is an idea whose time has come. Mm. You know, right. that's, that's what's happening. True. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess we have a couple of more questions, see if we can get a little bit more time for us. So, um, what role do you, you know, did HBCUs play or do you see them playing, particularly in sports or in basketball, as we go through this movement, right? I think there's this resurgence, this this energy. Kind of what role do you see, if any, that HBCUs may play? Well, I definitely. Um, so what I do is I look back at the, the role of HBCUs at the very beginning. All the HBCUs at the very beginning were, they, those were white established institutions that were, that had presidents and they were run by by white um, executives, right, or managers. Eventually, they got black presidents and, and so on. And those were actually breakthroughs at, at a certain point. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, during this early period of black basketball, Howard University's president was a white guy. And there's nothing wrong mm-hmm. with that. But it was just a slightly different um, nuance and twist to it, right? As we move forward, um, Howard University, Morgan State, and others, Hampton, Lincoln, um, used to be basketball powers in those days. And then the NCAA came in with the opening up of conferences. And and so most of the black talent um, either went to HBCUs or started matriculating into, um, you know, the SEC, the Big Ten, and, and, and elsewhere. Um, and eventually the HBCUs kind of faded and there's also some academic, um, reasons behind that, that are now being challenged in terms of eligibility, um, and the types of, um, resources that HBCUs have available to them in terms of funding. Um, and so when McCour Maker decided Mm. to go to Howard instead of, Kentucky or UCLA or Memphis, right? That was a huge, huge, yeah. huge moment. It went for Kenny Blakely, the head coach down there. Right. <laughs> Big win. No, and, and I mean, because I we gave him a nickname. His nickname is from now on history. Right. <laughs> <laughs> history Baker. Right. Um, and but the reason why that's important is, is that it made people really okay, time out. You know, we've always talked about this, but why can't we do that? Like, if the Fab Five had gone to Howard, 
then Howard would have won a national championship. Right. Um, yep. and, right. and people have said that for years, but now there's an opportunity for, especially if they change some of the rules um, around uh, these players sometimes getting suspended or being made ineligible or whatever, because um, they, they're, they're um, held to a different standard, HBCUs are. Right. But eventually that's going to all go away. And, and HBCUs will almost, you could almost say, rise again in a way. Um, and once you start having that, then I would expect the Nikes and the, the Pumas and others to start, you know, all of these teams um, have contracts and their uniforms are made by somebody. Right. Um, but, but what about the, the entire athletic facility? What about, you know... Right. Um, field what about the, the field house what about you know so th that i think that will come i mean it's not easy um but uh but and, and it's a marathon not a sprint right mm. and so i feel like um that you know hbcus definitely play a role they also play a role by the way just as quiet as that's kept for white people mm. right because, because it, if white people want to understand like what's it like to be around black people and like that's the way to find out if right. you, you know and so we know that there's quite a few i don't know what the percentages are but there's quite a few non uh historically black people who right. and historically black oh, definitely 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 you know? yeah i mean i went to i went to an all-boys prep school in newark new jersey and yeah. so that is like a case in point for like I would guess my class. So in my school at the where, time, where'd you, where'd you go? Tell me where you was it. St. Anthony's or St. Benedict's. St. Benedict's. Okay. Yeah. So I, I would guess St. Benedict's. It was maybe like three percent white. Maybe, maybe, like a you know my graduating class was seventy two people. I think out of the seventy two people, there was five white dudes, and. It, we I, I have to say that while we were in school, we, we didn't really, it didn't, like, I don't know, maybe it's the age or whatever, but it didn't, we didn't ever treat them any different than we would have treated anyone else. You know, we gave them a hard time as we would have given anyone else regardless. And I want, and I'm still friends with a lot of these guys. And, and I, 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 I would love to just ask them, you know, how haven't gone to a, like a pre, pre, predominantly black school, how they, how they feel it's not changed their life. Cause they, you can't change something that didn't happen, but how they think about things when things like, you know, that happen in the news, how they think about it, how, how they approach their emotions around feeling about this because you know, it's a whole difference. Like you said, it's different when you've been immersed in that culture enough to kind of feel something emotionally versus being like a white person who's lived from an, in, in, in a white neighborhood and grown up mostly around white people. And maybe you still feel bad, but you can't really identify with the, those issues as much as you probably would have had you gone to an HBCU or, you know, lived in any one of the number of urban areas like Detroit or L.A. or New York. Um, just curious what the what that 
would be like if I could ask them those questions. But you know, the thing is, I mean, that's those are really valid points. And by the way, my my third uh, son, our, our youngest son, uh, plays basketball, and uh, he helped lead them to the New Jersey State Prep Championship against. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> a little shot, a little shot. <laughs> But they and they lost. Oh no, man! It went, it came down to the last shot, the last yeah. second, and um, we we missed we missed a shot that could have been uh, 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 that could have uh, tied the game and sent it into overtime. And we have momentum, but you know they they're a great team. They're really that was a good that was a good game actually. I watched it. It was a good game. And then, but then we we did we did beat them this season. Just some just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Man, <laughs> um, it, it, you know, but it's all good. It's all good. Um, but so oh, the thing yeah, yeah. I would say is is that um, you know, we we have this opportunity um, where it's not just a black thing. It's a it's it's mankind. Right. It, it's humanity. Right. And so yeah, you definitely. didn't have to be. You didn't have to grow up in Detroit or in Newark. Um, to understand what happened, right? And the reason we know that right. is that I turned on the news one day and there were 50,000 people, most of, probably 99.9% .9 of them were white, marching in New Zealand, yep. chanting Black Lives Matter. Overseas, man. The same thing for Munich, Berlin, Paris, Amsterdam, London, Tokyo, and so at that point, it's not white, it's not black or white, it's right or wrong. None of those people grew up in Newark. Okay? Right. No. <laughs> because when you see this and you're a human, you start to realize, like, okay, wait, somewhere I lost my humanity. Mm. And this is what I think is the next wave is people, white people specifically, regaining their humanity. Mm. When you have to, when you're forced to watch, um, a lynching of a black person as a 12 year old boy or girl or whatever. Right. And people are almost practically eating popcorn watching. You lose your humanity as a result. Mm -hmm. That humanity is stripped from you against your will without you knowing it. And now you grow up with this wall. But what happened is it this past summer broke through that wall. Mm people finally starting to realize, wait, what have we lost all these years? Mm. Um, and what do we have to regain, right? right? And so it just so happens that we need each other, right? So white people right. need black people. Why? Because we have, in a way, um, never let, lost our humanity, mm -hmm. right? So we can we know how to pull ourselves up from our own bootstraps despite everything. And um, no matter what you take from us, you know, we have a new dance that gets co-opted. We got a new dance. Right. We got a new beat, a new vibe that gets co-opted. We got a new beat and a new vibe. Right. right. And so um, that ability, you know, that that that's something that um, we have to really understand and appreciate and value as our own. Right. So we in a way like we we are the prize. Right. And when I say that, I mean I don't mean that, that somebody else isn't the prize. Right. I just mean that for all those years, like as I'm doing this research, um, so many generations of black folks 
spent all their time trying to prove to white people mm. uh, we're equal. Can't you see we're equal? Look, here's another one of us that went to Harvard. Here's one that went to, you know, whatever. Right. But only to realize, guess what? We were always equal. Right. It's just right. that white people, certain white people, mm-hmm. didn't accept that. Right. And so that's the challenge of today is how do we get more people to accept it and to ask themselves, why don't I accept this? Like, mm. what is it that makes me not accept this? Right. Was it socialization? Was it what I was told? Was it what I learned? Like, why can't, why is that so hard? Um, and, and it's white people that have to talk to themselves, to each other. Mm. We, we can't be, we can't solve that. Right. No. Right. Right. Um, and by the way, it's not all white people. Exactly. Um, just like it's not all black people who suffered or this or that. But the point of it is like, we're all humans. Right. And we all are better off if we all understand humanity. Mm. And so this is something that you can't put this back in the can. Like right. it's out. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, no, no. summer is out. <laughs> right. And the part that's encouraging and really amazing to me is it was just this awakening of consciousness that has that I think mankind has never seen before. And so yep. it's the it's the dawn of a of a whole new era of something and so we're we're in it and yeah. you know this is this is it right now we're here so um all of these things happening you know professional players on platforms um, political reform other things but it's not a incident it's not that they just kept trying so hard that it's that this whole thing this whole ecosystem this whole universe everything is changing and it's evolving naturally because it's the evolution of consciousness oh. Like it or not, like, yes. <laughs> it's like, and it's to bring it round circle. We just have to be prepared for it now. Like, right? We, it's like, right? Our original thought here was, it, you know, things happen, and when the opportunity for this conversation happens, we just need to be ready that ready to take advantage of it. Right. Do the work. Right. Do the, Do the work. work that comes with it. Right. Right. Yeah, and ha- and have the conversations, you know, like my, my son who who uh, played against uh, St. Benedict, you know, he, he had a project and he said, Dad, you know, um, I just realized that uh, COVID-19 is like white supremacy. Hmm. People don't know they have it. They don't know how they got it. They don't know they're <laughs> passing it along. There's no cure unless you get a vaccine. You have right. to wear a mask to filter what you say. Um, you running around and some people believe it's a hoax. Some people don't even believe that it exists. Um, and you can, you don't have to get totally, you know, sick, you would, but still be a danger to society. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he's onto something because the vaccine really is the beginning of the vaccine is just talking, having the conversations, acknowledging it's not a shame or blame game. Um, to my to my white brothers and sisters who are listening, it's not a shame or blame game. It's right. not about oh you're wrong, you did this, you did that, you should be guilty. It is about just understanding, as I said before, as we were saying, you know why why do I not accept this? Who taught me that? And and right. just reexamining like what what's going on. Right. Just like if you have any other kind of trauma or anything else, you go see a therapist and you say, right. what's going on? I have this pattern. Like I keep doing this or 
Mm-hmm. You know, every time I, every every date I'm on, I keep having the same kind of girlfriend or boyfriend or right. whatever. Like, why? It's your pattern. You have to right. reconcile that, right? Got to diagnose. That's part of. That's part <laughs> of it. Right. You know? So being ready really just means you know delve more into your consciousness. Right. Um, we always used to say, just know how to be still, mm-hmm. listen mm-hmm. to what's happening. You know, right. inside um, at a deeper level. And um, there's plenty of people out there who can help, who can help with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you want to ask the closing question, Darren? The closing question? What closing okay. question? It's always about 12. <laughs> so 12 million, as we know, is inspired by Richard Wright's book called 12 Million Black Voices. So one of the things we always do in closing is ask our guests, what's a book? that you suggest, that you recommend, speaking about consciousness, what, what book do you want to leave with us? That's such a perfect segue. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, the, you see books around me. I, I love books. Um, I'm, I'm actually writing a book right now, got fit, trying to finish up the, the manuscript. But what, what, one of the things, just talking about consciousness and the awakening of consciousness, um, I'm not just, I'm not just going to give you one. You know, you're going to get one. That's what's up. That's what's up. Um, That's right? So um, one that had a profound impact on me and my mindset and what I was thinking about and just understanding what's happening right now is this book by a philosopher named Eckhart Tolle, T-O-L-L-E, and it's called A New Earth. A New Earth. It's brilliant. you gotta, you got to really pay attention. You can get it in audio. You can get it on Audible. You can get the actual book, take notes. Um, that That is a... a uh, pivotal cathartic game changer of a book um you don't have to buy or pay attention or care about what he specifically who he is or whatever but just the knowledge uh, you know and he's been on oprah and elsewhere like he's just recognized as a as an amazing as an amazing figure um uh and, and and he talks about consciousness and just the importance of that and what that means and how to even achieve that or get into that a little bit more be aware of it um then there's a book that helped me um become uh exactly right a new earth that's it um there's a uh there's another book um by an author named carol dweck d-w-e-c-k uh who's who's a stanford professor and she wrote a book called mindset Mindset, and when I was just like again shaking for me a parent, um, because what she talks about is just there's two different mindsets. One is growth, and one is fixed. The fixed mindset is like, well, that'll never change. It's not going to change. This is what I believe, and this is all I'm going to believe. But a growth mindset says, okay, let's look at what's happening. Let's see what adjustments there could be. Um, but even more specifically. Um, what she talks about in terms of kids is if you, let's say you have, I just put this into practice with my own children. So you have a child that comes home with an A Mm. or wins the race. Instead of saying, oh, you're so smart. Oh, you're so fast. You say, Mm. you know, the reason you probably got that A was because you were so conscientious and you managed your time and you did the homework and you cared about um, being accurate or getting the right answer or making sure you understood it. 
In other words, all the things that led to that versus just saying, and, and she talks specifically about women circling back around where a lot of society will say, oh, you're so cute. Oh, she's so beautiful. Um, but if you, if, you, if you believe that, if you believe when somebody says, oh, you're so smart, then you're not going to be sure what to say when somebody says, you're dumb. Right. Mm. So it's better with your children or when they, when, they, when they get A's, but then all of a sudden they get a D or an F, then they're going to either think you lied <laughs> or there's something wrong with them. And so it's better to say, well, the reason you got that A or the reason you were so fast is because you work hard on, your, on how fast your start is in that sprint or your stamina, or it's because you eat a lot of the right foods. You eat a lot of spinach. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because you have to have reasons. Right. And that changed my whole philosophy of parenting. Right. And it's, it's just really important also in terms of managing a team, even coaching. Um, you know, if you have a coach, if you win, if you win the game, you have to say, you know, that was, that was good, but I need, I need more effort. Right. right. It was a good result, but I need more effort. If you lose the game, you say that was really good effort, but we need better results. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I mean, right. like in other words, you're constantly right. trying to grow, grow, grow. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, I would, and, I would imagine that I would imagine that also when you when you're when you compliment somebody on the process versus the end result, it's a different mindset because right. especially with kids you when you say hey uh, if, you know you really I love how you prepared for that term paper and you you were you know when you start to compliment the process it right. it, it subconsciously attaches the, to them and says that they are on the right track for how they're doing things versus right. always complimenting the end result of something because at that point they don't know what it is got them there or at least they're not you haven't acknowledged the process that they used that got them there and I think yeah. that happens with athletes as well uh, that might be why Bill Belichick is so good because I think he's good at you know acknowledging the process not the end result of the game or the end yeah. result of the play that's why sometimes you can't control the result right I mean a right. lot of times you can't control the result that's right but it's about as you all are saying it's about being consistent in the process right and yeah. And growing in the process, and if you do that consistently, then and when they get most likely wrong, you'll get the, the positive result. Right. And when they get something wrong, you can be specific enough to let them know what they need to work on. Yeah, yeah. and you can ask the question: Well, what, why do you think that was? Right. Because see, yeah. if all they knew was, "Well, I'm you're so smart," and you ask that that kid, "Why do you think that was?" Then they they kind of have to say, "Because I'm dumb." Like right. Right, you know, because right. there's nowhere to go. But if right. you if you focus on the process and they can say, "Oh well, I think I probably could have spent more time on mm -hmm. that subject, or when I reviewed, or I could have taken better notes, or mm -hmm. whatever." And and uh, uh, Professor Dweck actually mentions Michael Jordan in in her book and his mm -hmm. talking about process. Like she talks about how he would like immediately after winning um, the end. 
championship after the last game, he would go right back on. Like the next day or that night, he would be working on his free throws or something, right. or something. Right. and um, you know, relentless, right? So, so those are those are two. I I, I thought I had another one in mind, but I can't remember what, what it was right now. <laughs> um, so, no, but this has been great. Um, yeah, this yeah. was this was this was this was very education. I take a lot lot away from this conversation. Yeah, yeah. me too. Yeah. I mean, you guys were asking the right questions. You you did some research. You you ended up, um, you know, had a a great list. Uh, it wasn't just random thoughts. Um, you know, you wanted to you wanted to get you wanted to cover the bases, and um, you were you're technologically advanced. Uh, you know, with the, I've never even heard of rest rest stream, uh, but now I know. Yeah, we're uh, at the cutting edge. Right? Yeah, you're at the vanguard, bro. You know? I mean, and, I, and I appreciate being being part of this, you know. And, and yeah, we I, definitely appreciate you coming on. Um, you know, wish you a lot of luck. Uh, but you know, just keep up the great work. We definitely are a, a supporter. So you know, whatever we can do to support you, Black Fives, um, you know, you can definitely reach out to Claude at BlackFive.org. Um, I know he has partnerships with Puma that you can get at certain locations. Um, and then even I think stuff is for sale on Puma.com. Um, and also on our store, which is yeah. shop.blackfives.org. And obviously you can you can still donate because we're a nonprofit. So you could go to shop.blackfives.org. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I just want to point out that that you know, Akbar and I, like we've been having conversations about, you know, Akbar is very humble. He's not talking about any of his products or what yeah. he does professionally, but, you know, he has some very compelling um, products and mindset about cr- creativity and, and, and things that are appealing. So we're talking to them about possibly adding some, some products to our Definitely. store, the Black Fives online fan shop, we call it. Right. Definitely. <laughs> we'll see where that goes. You know, keep definitely, definitely. Very excited about that. But oh, we'll no. have to have you back on in the future as well. I wanted so. to throw this up there because I want to read this after you mentioned it. The Hard Road to Glory, History of African-American Athlete by Arthur Ashe. Yeah, that's, that's probably the third one I was going to mention. So thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Definitely. Thank you again for being on the podcast. This was awesome. You're welcome to come back anytime you want. Thank you. Yeah. No, I, I, anything I, I, that you're releasing, educational wise, not just the merchandise, but oh, true. any initiative that you're doing, any new things that we can be a part of, just let us know. Yeah, let us know. And then also let let us know, uh, you know, any way we can help and promote what you guys are doing, which I think is really great. And I definitely have to. I have. A, I have a contact. I have to introduce you to because, you, I, I, yeah, we'll, we'll talk in a, in a few seconds. So, um, thanks, everyone. I appreciate you listening to the podcast, Akbar. Um, talk to you in a minute too. Yeah. And, so, um, thank you all. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you in the next twelve minutes. Thank you guys. Yeah. Take care. Make history now. Yes. Yep. Yeah.